Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I and the CEO of Canon Press, Jess Hall, had the opportunity to talk with David L. Bonson. He is the managing partner and founder of the Bonson Group. He is the, also the author of Crisis of Responsibility, and he contributes to National Review. You may have seen him on CNBC or Fox Business as well. We talk about his brand new book, No Free Lunch, and other money and finance aspects of the Christian life. So go find No Free Lunch. It's everywhere books are sold. The audio is already out. So if you're an audiobook listener, go pick it up today. And without further ado, meet David Bonson. All right, now welcoming on special guest, David Bonson, portfolio manager, author, and television commentator. David, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Jess Hall, CEO of Canon Press. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for Welcome having back. me on. Today, we have David on. He's joining us to talk about his brand new book, No Free Lunch. And additionally, we're announcing that David's video series, The Dividend Cafe, your video blog that comes out on Fridays. It's now available also on the Canon app. So David, thank you for letting us feature that on the app. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I, I appreciate the fact that there was an interest there and uh, hopefully people get something out of it worthwhile. Yeah. If we could ask real quick, what is the thing that you would hope that people could get out of the Dividend Cafe? What is the main motivation um, for writing it? Yeah, I mean, in a high level, I always want people to find something that is uh, intellectually compelling about the markets and the economy and basic investing principles in each and every edition of the Dividend Cafe. But if I were being a bit more targeted to your uh, market, I have a kind of special interest in um, those of the Christian community to develop a little bit more investment sophistication, because I think it's in short supply in our world, and I don't want that to be the case. Agreed. Now, speaking of our market in particular, when they hear the last name Bonson, David is probably not the first person they're thinking of. Yeah, you're gonna you're talking about my uncle Stan who pitched for <laughs> who, who who pitched for the Yankees, and that's right. He was he was the national he was the American League Rookie of the Year in 1971. As a matter, we have of a very passionate baseball <laughs> Yankee fan, Yankee Yankee, Yankee <laughs> following here uh, at Cannon Press. But it, it, it's it's most likely your dad, Greg. Can you introduce you? So, if if folks have never heard of you, and if they hadn't you know, seen any of your talks at the Fight Laugh Feast conferences. Can you introduce yourself to, to those people that may not be familiar with you? Well, I'll start with what you brought up, which is I am the direct lineage of uh, Dr. Greg L. Bonson, who um, was my, uh, is my late father. And, and so my, my dad was a well-known Christian theologian and philosopher and apologist and, and passed away. When I was 20 years old, and uh, he was um, in his 40s himself, and so uh, there. Fortunately for me, I, I got to enjoy uh, 20 years with with a truly uh, amazing human being, um, both as a person and as a, a thinker. And he was the greatest influence that I have ever or ever will have 
in my life. Um, as far as my own personal story, aside from entering adulthood as a kind of orphaned and, and, you know, sort of, you know, unfortunate circumstances because of the age of my dad's passing and my age when it happened, my, my mom was already gone. And so this was pretty big biographical moment, but, um, by God's grace, I, I have developed uh, a career in the world of finance and skipping over uh, 27 years of detail <laughs> and sit here today running a firm called the Bonson Group. And that's the entity from which I write the Dividend Cafe property every week and manage uh, close to $3.5 billion of client capital. Um, we have offices in Newport Beach, California, New York City, opened one this year in Minneapolis, and just recently announced a new one that will open in Nashville. And I actually signed the lease on that deal when I was in Nashville for the last uh, uh, Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. And so nice. nice. Th- there will always be a connection to, to you all in that, <laughs> Nashville, that Nashville office, which will have its grand opening in the first quarter of next year. So that's my story. I'm married. I have three children. Uh, I go back and forth every month as I have for five years with my wife between New York City and Newport Beach and want nothing short uh, of world domination from my <laughs> my life and career. I'm curious in these, I, I assume being with the Bonta group and the success there, are you ever in like these, these big meetings and then somebody, you could just feel somebody staring at you and they're just sort of like the great debate. Is that, does you ever get recognized in that world? Um, you know, it's funny. I, um, I'm, if I'm at an event that is affiliated, not just with Christianity, but specifically reformed Christianity and specifically you know, even more distinctive than just merely reformed. Um, so, so something like a, a fight, laugh, feast type deal. You know, sure. where there there are probably more people that would be familiar with, with the Greg Bonson theme than, than with me. I don't know that they'd recognize me visually from that, but sure. the the name is going to be more affiliated there. But as uh, my career has has sort of grown and and. You know, I'm on um, Fox News, you know, three or four times a week, every week, and have been for a number of years, and CNBC and Bloomberg and things. Now, every uh, it's funny, uh, someone will come up to me and, and they'll recognize me, and I'm at an airport or restaurant, and it takes me a couple seconds to get used to the fact that they're recognizing me for me, not right, me for being right. Greg's son, you know? <laughs> okay. So, in terms of the money and, and the finance world, what what about it? What was it that sent you down that rabbit hole? What got you interested in it? Was it the nature of people or the nature of money? How did you end yes. up where you are? <laughs> yes. People, people and money, two of God's favorite things. I, um, it's very interesting. Someone asked me this question in another interview this week. And so I want to make sure I answer it similarly to how I did before, lest it look like I'm making stuff up. But I, I was a huge fan as a kid. Uh, I mean, like obsessed, like went as, on Halloween as this character, Michael J. Fox's character on the show Family Ties, for those who remember Alex P. Keaton. And I would wear a tie to work and carry, I mean, to school and carry a briefcase and things like that when you didn't have to. Uh, we, we didn't have like a uniform like that. But I just had this obsession. And one day I wanted to work in finance. And I was definitely a very kind of conservative minded guy. I was reading. National Review when I was literally five or six years old. And, 
And there um, was always a great interest for me in, in entering the world of finance. I studied economics obsessively in high school. And yet being the son of Greg Bonson, who was my hero, I did have a tremendous interest in systematic theology. I, I was able to get that out of my system uh, as young as possible. But, <laughs> but in, in, in high school, I, I ne- really am not exaggerating. I'm very confident I read over 10,000 pages of systematics. And, and so uh, the world of you know, public thought and applying the truth claims of scripture to something in, in culture always appealed to me a great deal. But it's difficult to explain, and I don't think your listeners want to have to hear my you know, biographical side, but it's hard to explain how life goes when, when all of a sudden, the very, very, very beginning of your young adult life, you, you lose your, your, a parent like that. You know? sure. um, it wasn't just merely what everybody would go through, the, the sadness, the, the, the loneliness, the, the uh, you know, being separated from somebody you love. Like that, that's all very, very real, very difficult. But simultaneously, you're dealing with this sort of identity crisis of like who you are, what you're going to do with your life, who you're going to be. And, and so in a weird way, as I think about what God's done in my life 27 years later, I kind of feel like I had sort of two different childhood dreams, and both of them have kind of come true. Now, I don't consider myself a public intellectual at all, but I do. I am blessed to have a bit of a platform. I get to write and speak. And for whatever reason, some, some people will listen and read. And, and, and I get to share things that I believe in the public square uh, that are um, economic, but also political, also theological, cultural, philosophical. There's different, there, there, there's different thought um, experiments that I get to kind of play out publicly. And that means a great deal to me. And then at the same time, uh, my calling in finance, in the in the field and vocation of stewardship, um, has also come true. And and not only do those, do both those things exist, but they sort of exist in concert with one another. There's a great deal of overlap, and I'm very grateful for that. Totally, and I I've certainly enjoyed. Jess actually is the one who who has recommended your content and trying to catch up on the on the dividend cafe. Um, one thing I'm I'm curious about is in terms of the Christian world, there's, we've gone through like, in terms of the mainstream, there's been like a couple movements of like, there's the radical thing and then like wartime living. It was essentially like a place where the minute you start talking about building wealth, um, it would be seen as very suspicious. I remember actually there was a, a blogger who, when they saw that Dave Ramsey wrote a book on just, you know, building wealth for your grandkids. That was, you know, a f- big faux pas. And I'm sure there are things you could critique about Dave, Ra- Dave Ramsey views the Bible or a particular text or what have you, but it seemed like that one is a good one. He saw a proverb and he thought, how do I, how do I do this today? Do you see, like, in terms of your content and book writing, do you see objections similar to that? Or people, do you generally see that people are suspicious of something like building wealth? Um, I don't see it too much, but I know it's out there. I will say with, you know, there's a tiny bit of sarcasm in this, but, but I mean it pretty seriously or I wouldn't say it. Um, generally, the people that are critiquing the idea of building wealth are, are people who don't have any and don't exert the effort to get any. And, and their theological positions on opposed to wealth building are really theological proclamations in favor of their lifestyle. 
Right. And they don't necessarily know that there's varying degrees of self-awareness, but usually they're projecting their own um, decisions in life. Sure. If, that, if I can say that. Absolutely. There are folks certainly that would take exception to certain things around the priorities, around the relevance of vocational calling. And then there's plenty of people that might have opposition to the idea of capital markets. They're a little turned off by the term Wall Street. They have a bad taste in their mouth about you know financiers that wear a suit to work and go around <laughs> buying stocks and, and evil things like that. Right. But the general just sort of pro-poverty position that might have been more affiliated with the scholastics or, or in fairness to the scholastics, really even more the Franciscans before them, I, I don't run into it a bunch. Okay. I, just, I know it's out there. But unfortunately, I think the objections I run into are more prevalent and, and more reflective of not just biographical positioning, but actually pretty faulty thinking. Can you tell us about those? Like, what are objections you do run into most often, you feel? Well, like I said, I think there are people that have a certain view of Wall Street that is very negative. Yeah. And if you get the chance to converse intelligently and civilly and kind of explain Wall Street as sort of a metaphor for capital markets, not a physical place where people are sitting around um, showing off their Rolexes to one another, <laughs> but but the, the the kind of way in which capital innovates and flows and funds and trades and transacts in society and how various equity and debt markets function for the purpose of funding business. If you talk about it um, with a theoretical foundation that, that you know people say they believe in free markets, we use the term, I don't care for it, but we use the term capital as a summary of uh, free markets. And, the, and there are people that would say they're in favor of capitalism, but aren't in favor of capital markets. And so you have to kind of be able to explain to people how utterly self-contradictory that is <laughs> and that you cannot have and will not have capitalism without capital markets. Um, but generally, again, it, it comes down to people having a kind of bad taste in their mouth that isn't necessarily specific or identifiable to a viewpoint as much as a narrative, you know, that there's a view of the financier as greedy and as uh, self-interested and, and, um, working against the plight of the common man and so forth. And so uh, I, I think that those things can be overcome as long as you get the chance to have intelligent conversation, but you don't always get that opportunity. Yeah. Let me, let me ask a question on behalf of, you know, some questions I've heard from others, which is, you know, you're asking, you're asking for a friend. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> it's not me. It's someone else. I know stocks and trading. Isn't that just gambling? Well, of course not. Now, trading, if someone means sitting there trading day by day, buying today, selling tomorrow, then that's certainly gambling. Absolutely. And, and in fact, it's probably, it's probably much dumber than gambling because I, they do give free cocktails in Vegas <laughs> where like, if you sit there, Atlantic City or Las Vegas or whatnot, and you're losing a certain amount of money. And if you imbibe enough in the free beverages, you can you can offset some of your losses, right. <laughs> and 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 sitting there day trading stocks and whatnot, you generally don't get free beverages. You can grab drinks out of your fridge, but they you have to pay for them. And so, what I refer to by participation in the equity markets is something more parable of the talents esque, where people are investing in the future cash flows of sustainable, viable businesses that are creating goods and services in society and are well-managed and so forth and so on. So the trading day in and day out of equities 
is I'm not I'm not I identifying as a sin, but I am uh, identifying it as something other than investing. Yeah, far more risky than investing in a company that has value for the marketplace. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be my view. Yes. What about? I know there's some Christian investors who would say you don't invest in a company that is immoral. How do you think about that? <laughs> That's immoral. When you, yeah, I mean the sin free, the sin free life. You know, I love it. I, I'm all for it. I don't know what it means. I, I I have written a lot about it. I've lectured all over the country. I am firmly convinced that Paul's uh, exhortation of us being in the world but not of the world was actually intended for this future debate. <laughs> Look, if I go out and buy, let's pick an ABC company that has some policies we don't like, and they make some products we don't like, and they have some wokey woke, you know, uh, nonsense that they do. If I go out and buy stock in that company, I didn't give them any money. I bought it from you, right? Like right. It's, just, it's called a secondary market. We're not directly funding. But here's how I can give money directly to those companies by buying anything I buy ever, going to the store. Right. So, so there are people who say you can't buy stock in a company, but they'll go to the grocery store, the movie theater, they'll get a newspaper subscription. And, and they'll say, well, no, no, I looked into it. This store doesn't do anything bad. And of course, you know, there, there's a kind of weird theology there about what constitutes sin. But my point would be that this is totally unavoidable. And even if you somehow work harder than anyone ever has to avoid a first order of exposure to sin, you have no chance of avoiding a second order. Because the perfectly pure company you do do business with, or they uh, inevitably bank with a company that does business with somebody you don't like. And if they don't, then they have a counterparty and they have vendors and suppliers. And, uh, you know, my point being, you cannot avoid touching these things. So you have two choices. One is, and I think it's perfectly acceptable, to realize that your um, avenue of investing is about the return you're generating and the fruits you're going to generate from that investment, what you're going to do with that, what it means in your, in your uh, overall objectives as a saver, as an investor, as a family person, as a philanthropist, all those different hats that one may wear. The second is to say, no, I actually do want to get pretty activist about it. So not only do I want to be an investor in companies that might have some, some bad things that they do here and there, um, I want to take advantage of that role to go try to exert change. I would respect that view more than I would the view of don't touch it because it's bad. If someone believed it's bad, I'd rather they say, therefore, I want to buy more shares. So I have more clout at a shareholder meeting so I can ask more questions of management. If you own one share in Microsoft, they have to let you at a shareholder meeting. They have to take your question. Okay, now are they going to exert change because one guy with one share wants to know why they're, you know, doing XYZ kind of, you know, wokey woke policy? Pro probably not. But my point is, if one wants to get loaded for bear on this issue, then let's go that direction, not the retreatist direction. But fundamentally, the concept of reinvesting is tile on this side of glory. I have a hard time believing anybody doesn't know that. I think it's a well-intentioned question when people ask it. But if they say, I don't invest in public companies, all the sin out there and these bad things, I only have some private companies where there's no sin, you know, it, it, I mean, it, <laughs> it's just, it, it, yeah. We, yeah. So that's my view. That's great. We have a lot of young families here at, working at Canon and I think a lot of listeners as well. Would you have any recommendation on like, what should a balanced portfolio look like? What kind of investments are a wise investment? 
Well, it is a really, really fair question. And yet um, I want to be able to reiterate a principle I believe in a lot, which is that, um, you know, like if we if one arm goes in the freezer and one arm goes in the oven, I don't believe it to be balanced. You know, I, I think you're, you're going to die. And <laughs> and and so the concept of balance exists in the sense of you have a thousand young families after we were done. If each family had an ideal portfolio for them and each and each. Family had a financial situation that are priority and identified objectives and matched those objectives to solutions that optimally meet them. And we did that for a thousand families. There would be an average, but the average would be like the freezer and the oven analogy. It would only be incidental to the fact that there's a lot of different situations all over the place that just mathematically end up with a with a mean. Um, and, and, and so each individual family circumstances, their need for liquidity, the vulnerability in their job position, um, the amount of resources they have, their, their living expenses, the amount of kids, their, their personal family goals around uh, tithing and, and giving and philanthropy, their, their uh, feelings about college education. There, there are so many different factors that could play in. And yet there's the same principles that are at play, you know, one's short-term needs and medium-term needs and longer-term needs, identifying a liquidity profile, meaning an access to capital that is appropriate to each of those goals. There, there are principles that can be applied to every family, but each family's particular situation is going to represent a different kind of need, need and result. And so, um, and, and of course, I think one of the variables I may have skipped to say is probably one of the most important ones, which is resources. Mm, right. You know, a family that might have $50,000 of emergency savings and a couple hundred thousand dollars of retirement money, maybe, maybe a house paid. And all of a sudden, someone comes by with this really interesting private business uh, opportunity. And it's high risk, but high reward. It's going to tie up money for maybe 10 years. It could even require calling additional capital. Well, that family just probably is not in a position to be able to invest in something like that. Where, whereas some people have a more mature balance sheet and have a, a accumulated more resources, they may have their ducks in a row on a lot of the more conventional financial priorities, and then be in a position to do some more exotic and 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 risky and and time uh, intensive type investments. And and I'm a big fan of all those things. And and yet I wouldn't recommend them for everybody. And so it's just a very tailored process, family by family. Sure. If you would agree with the, the premise that people should be you know, investing for the future, I, I've talked to a lot of people and right now they'd say the stock market is at all-time highs, yet we've shut down our country. Stupidity can't be this successful. So I'm going to wait and invest once this bubble pops. What would you say to someone thinking that way? Well, I mean, there's, there's two things. The, the stock market being all-time high is a very odd thing to say if one thinks just for a second. Now, first of all, it's very intuitive. I get it. Let's just stop for a second. Was the market an all-time... Right now, the Dow's at 36,000. Was it at an all-time high when it was at 1,000? You can point. answer if you want. Yeah, at one point. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then 2,000, and then 3,000, and then 5, and 10, and 12. The market has been at all-time high 567 times in the last eight years. So an all-time high has nothing to do with overvalued. An all-time valuation, it turns out the high, most expensive, the price to earnings ratio ever was of the S&P was in the year 2000. 
but my point is that the price level doesn't necessarily dictate overvaluation. It, it is uh, inevitable byproduct of math. Um, if earnings are continuing to grow, and then prices continue to go higher, and the idea of a free enterprise society is one in which earnings are able to continue growing. Now, that's a different subject than whether or not I think this market is a bit overpriced, and especially if there's a bubble. Bubbles are generally defined by debt. There's a lot of debt behind an asset that levers that asset up. That's what our housing crisis was in 2008. That's what the dot-com crash was in 1999-2000. I think there are certain parts of the market right now that are really very frothy, very expensive. Um, and I think there's other parts of the market that are not. So I think it's more selective and active. So in a lot of ways, I share the concern, but I share it with a nuance that I think is worth sharing. And I, I, I share the concern um, with, want, with just a desire for more clarity about the, those ideas. When people talk about all-time high, I don't think it necessarily means what people think it means. Right. Well, I've, I, like Jake mentioned, I really appreciate all your commentary on the markets and um, just how to be thinking shrewdly about finance and investing. And that's why I wanted to get the Dividend Cafe in front of our audience so that they would just have a resource to just kind of think clearly when there can be a lot of excitement or feelings that's not tied to reality or, you know, basic principles of profit growing a price of shares. Awesome. David, thank you so much. You can go get his book everywhere. It's already in audio. Is that correct? The hardback came out yesterday. It's out in every format everywhere. It is the number one book in the country in economics on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble, bookstores, anywhere people want. Awesome. No free lunch. Go get it today. Thank you so much for giving us your time, David. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Look forward to being back with you another time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.